Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When he fled America for the Soviet Union in the fall of 1959, Lee Harvey Oswald never imagined that he would ever return. He hated America and its capitalist system. He said so. He also said that in wartime, he would, if necessary, kill any American. Any American. But now, just two and a half years later, he was back his steamship docking at Hoboken, New Jersey. It was June 13, 1962. Oswald had tried and failed to make a go of it in the Soviet Union, which he mistakenly thought was some kind of paradise. Boy, was he wrong. So he returned after borrowing money from the U.S. government he detested to make the journey. He hated the government, but not its money. But Oswald now had responsibilities, namely a Soviet-born wife and daughter. Where would he go? What would he do? I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to Countdown to Dallas, a podcast series based on my book of the same title. I've mentioned before that Oswald saw himself as some kind of historic figure. He called his own diary, for example, his, quote, historic diary. He sought attention, eagerly giving interviews to American and Soviet journalists after he defected in 1959. But that initial interest in him quickly faded away. Now he seemed to be hoping for a fresh round of attention with his return to America. Here's his older brother, Robert, on PBS's Frontline. He had prepared answers and statements anticipating reporters either at the ship or someplace down the line on the return. And I think he was surprised when he stepped off the plane in Dallas Love Field. He asked me, what, no reporters? I said, yes, I've been managed to keep it quiet. And that was it. But I think he was disappointed. Now that Oswald was back home, the old dynamic with his mother, Marguerite, returned. If there was one person in the world that Oswald wanted to avoid, wanted to have minimal contact with, it was her. Remember, when Oswald was growing up, he lived in 21 different homes, including being dumped in an orphanage at one point. That's how unstable Marguerite Oswald was, and thus that's how unstable Lee's upbringing was. Here's Robert Oswald again. What Lee missed from his childhood in comparison to me was the whole family being together all the time, the continuity there, the stability. Uh, the lack of stability, I think, entered uh, uh, into that to a large degree. He added this. I don't know at what age mother verbalized to Lee the effect that she felt he was a burden to her. Certainly by age three, he had the sense that, you know, we were a burden. 
Imagine that, a boy being told by his own mother that he was a burden. What kind of a mother would do that? Historian Stephen Beschloss is the author of an illuminating 2013 book, The Gunman and His Mother. The fact is that she uh, she was not a well person. She was uh, emotionally troubled, and uh, she, you know, she she wasn't able to hide uh, her uh, discontent uh, with her own life. Right, so so that got translated to the boys. Now the older brothers, the half brothers, were a little bit older. They had a little more detachment. They had a little bit more life before, uh, you know, before Lee. And um, you know, I think they were in their own ways. You know, um, were John and Robert were both able to separate more from her. Uh, you know, Lee was more stuck in in her orbit uh, with all the I think consequences of that. Oswald's mother was screwed up, and Lee was exposed to her insecurities and poor attitudes for years. No wonder he lied to Marina that his mother was dead. I asked Beschloss this. What do you make of the fact that he lied about things big and small, and I think uh, Marina or uh, someone in the emigre community who was observing this said he lies about things that he has no reason to lie about? Why did he do that? Well, again, you know, uh, this is somebody who uh, was deeply dissatisfied with his own life, uh, wanted to be somebody bigger than he was, uh, needed to always find a way to uh, to make whatever it was bigger or better or different than what it was. And so um, so I think, you know, kind of a concrete addressing of his reality would have caused, uh, you know, I don't know if it would be like a narcissistic collapse. I don't know if that's, you know, the right psychological explanation of what he was facing. But this was somebody who couldn't who couldn't face the truth of his own life. And the truth of his own life was this. In the summer of 1962, when he returned to America, Oswald had already established quite a track record of failure. High school dropout, court-martialed in the Marines, not once, but twice, washout at a menial factory job in the Soviet Union, and the instability as a child that I mentioned, as we're about to see, it would also define Oswald the adult. Now back in Texas, where he hadn't lived since 1956, when he left to join the Marines, Oswald, Marina, and June moved in with Robert Oswald and his family in a two-bedroom, one-bath house in Fort Worth. It was a tight fit. Now, Marina getting her first glimpse of the capitalist West that her husband so despised was amazed. The well-stocked grocery stores, the appliances, the conveniences, the openness. She loved it. What she did not love was the changes she saw in her husband. Oswald, for example, discouraged her from learning English. He wanted to control Marina. It wasn't long before they resumed arguing, as they did in Minsk. KGB files showed that the Oswalds had more than their share of spats. Vyacheslav Nikonov, I've mentioned him before, reviewed their file for Frontline back in 1993. I don't think they were the happiest family in the world. They had a lot of quarrels all the time and even some fights. But now, according to Priscilla Johnson McMillan, author of Marina and Lee, a highly recommended book, Oswald began to hit her. 
He told her not to say anything to Robert or his wife, or, Lee said, he would kill her. Marina told McMillan that it was that night, that warm summer night in Texas, that she began to fear him. But the newly arrived emigre, speaking essentially no English, had nowhere else to go. Oswald, meanwhile, began looking for work. After visiting a job center in Fort Worth, he got a call from a petroleum engineer by the name of Paul Gregory. Gregory was an emigre himself, having fled Russia back in 1919 after the Bolshevik Revolution. This was how Oswald met Gregory's son, Paul Gregory Jr., who in 1962 was 21. Six decades later, I asked him about the first time he met Oswald. Tell me, what did he, your first impressions of him? What did he look like? How was his attitude? Did he strike you as an intelligent person? Uh, tell me about uh, your first impressions of him. First impressions were as follows. For some reason, I viewed him as short, but then I, I looked up the stats, and I think he was like 5'10", 5'11", so he really wasn't short. I remember him as, as slightly balding, well-dressed. He That seemed to be a constant. He did try to dress well, so as not to look like a manual worker. He was clean-shaven. Most of the attention at that meeting went to Marina, who was the real star of the show. It was she that uh, the Dallas Russians wanted to meet. It was she I wanted to meet. So Lee was an appendage. The actual meeting was not very uh, momentous. We looked at um, pictures. They brought picture books with them, and Lee was... A rare exception for Lee was that he was willing to talk about his days in Minsk, whereas he was not willing to talk about most other things. So I guess the short answer to your question is it was not a memorable meeting. Lee did not make much of an impression. Uh, Marina did. And uh, that's about all I can say about that. The Oswalds were soon discovered by the local emigrate community, and what's interesting about this is that unlike in Minsk, where Oswald, for a brief period, was an object of curiosity and interest, in Texas, it was Marina who was the object of attention. As for Oswald, as Gregory said, he did not make much of an impression. I asked him about that. Well, the... Uh major reaction was to keep her out as much as possible out of sight, keep her away from anyone with whom she might strike up uh, a friendship. So the one case where I can give you a fairly concrete answer uh, was when we went into a pharmacy because in Fort Worth, because as you know, uh, Marina was a trained pharmacist, which is right. not the training you would get here, but it was pretty pretty good training, pretty advanced training. And, you know, to tell the truth, it could not have escaped Lee that he, who he perceived himself as an intellectual, was really outgunned by Marina in terms of educational credentials. So that must have weighed upon him that he was not only second fiddle socially, but he was second fiddle uh, educationally. 
but when we did go into the pharmacist, uh, into the Fort Worth pharmacy, and the pharmacist was kind of interested, who is this woman? And I told her she's a pharmacist from Russia. And he said, well, if you knew English, maybe I could give you a job. And remember, this time Lee was making a dollar twenty-five, and here Marina discovers, because I was there and able to sort of communicate for her with the pharmacist. Here was Lee learning that uh, she, she could easily be the the primary breadwinner, and they would be you know three times, four times better off. So it must have hit him like that in a number of cases, but that's one case where I can, where I was a, what what you could call a, a, an eyewitness. He had that sort of played to something that a lot of conspiracy folks can't seem to acknowledge. They focus just on the events of the day of the assassination largely and this and that, but uh, delving into his background, the story that you just uh, told me, Paul, uh, he was a deeply insecure young man. He didn't even like the fact that his wife was smarter than him, was capable of earning more money than him. That must have just uh, irked him to no end. Clearly, that's that was the case, and clearly that explains why he wanted to keep her isolated. And it was rather remarkable that I got admitted into their inner sanctum of their home and marriage and parenting, et cetera. So this, in fact, he told Marina that, look, I've um, gotten some Russian speakers to come over uh, to please you. So this, this was presented to her as a concession that these outsiders were going to come and speak with her in, in her own language. So it, 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 it would have been a, a constant uh, problem for Lee. And, you know, I did witness the fact that whenever I brought up the fact that Marina should really learn English, that would set him off. But I was not perceptive enough to uh, you know, pick up small signals. So I would keep on asking her, you know, have you learned any English? Can I help you in any way? You know, not knowing that this was... Um, upsetting her husband considerably. Well, he wanted to just uh, control her in every way. Correct. Now, just to emphasize here, Paul Gregory Jr. actually knew the Oswalds in 1962, had maybe two dozen interactions with them, and, as he stressed to me, the approach he took in his 2023 book, Lone Gunman, the man who knew Lee Harvey Oswald, an excellent book, by the way, the approach he took with that book was quite conservative. What I was trying to do with, with the book that I wrote, and that was to sort of limit myself to incidents and, and uh, episodes that I either personally witnessed or was somehow a party to. And as you've heard, he was party to quite a bit. More Countdown to Dallas right after this quick break. Hello everyone. 
My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. So the interviews with both Stephen Beschloss, who focused on Oswald's family history, and Paul Gregory Jr., who actually knew Oswald, are useful in illustrating the future assassin's background and temperament in ways that, frankly, conspiracy buffs rarely, if ever, acknowledge. I mentioned a few minutes ago that the emigre community in the Dallas-Fort Worth area also got to know the Oswalds. One person who met Lee in that summer of 62 was Max Clark, a local attorney. As was the case with many who encountered Oswald, that first impression was less than positive. Clark, who was one of 552 people to testify before the Warren Commission, said he wanted to meet Oswald because he was interested in Russia. He said, and this was rare for Oswald, that Oswald was very talkative. Clark said, quote, he seemed to want to make a point with everyone he met that he wanted them to know that he was Lee Oswald, the defector. He seemed quite proud of that distinction. In his opinion, he thought that made him stand out, and he would always say, you know who I am, when he met someone for the first time, unquote. You know who I am? Oswald was bragging about betraying the United States. He was proud of it. But that's not the most interesting part of what Clark said. Clark also testified that he had, and I'll quote directly from his testimony again, the, quote, general impression that he, Oswald, wanted to be famous or infamous. That seemed to be his whole life ambition, to become somebody, unquote. You'll recall that in the Marines in 1959, Oswald allegedly told another leatherneck Carrie Wendell Thornley, that he wanted to be remembered in history books, quote, 10,000 years from now. Thornley testified that Oswald was, quote, concerned with his image in history. To be remembered in 10,000 years. You know who I am? The consistency in Oswald's ego and ambition tracked over an arc of several years is striking. In July, Oswald moved to a new apartment in Fort Worth. It was paid for by his mom, Marguerite, who wanted to be near Lee, though the feeling was not mutual. But after crashing with his brother Robert for a few weeks, Oswald was happy, or happier, to have a place of his own. But tension began to emerge between Marguerite and Marina Oswald, with the mother-in-law telling the daughter-in-law, you took my son away from me or words to that effect. 
Marina's English was poor, but the tone was clear. Marguerite, who had babied Oswald his whole life, seemed upset or jealous that Lee now had another woman in his life. And what about Marina and daughter June? When was Lee going to take care of his family? He'd been sponging off his brother and was now accepting help from his mom. On July 17th, he found a job as a sheet metal worker at the Leslie Welding Company. It paid $1.25 an hour. Oswald thought it beneath him, the same attitude he had towards the factory job he had in Minsk. This was another consistency in Oswald's life, a string of menial, low-paying jobs that were not, in his view, appropriate for a man of his intellect and ability. Unlike every other job he had, though, Oswald did pretty well at this one. He was lucky, though, that his employers did not know that he had lied on his application about being honorably discharged from the Marines. And they didn't seem to know that Oswald had been a defector to the Soviet Union and that he had written diatribes about hating America and all the rest. It was noticed, however, and rather quickly, that Oswald was lacking in social skills and didn't speak with anyone. The boy who had spent all his time alone living in a shell continued to do so now. One of the first things Oswald did, now that he had a job, was to get his own home for his family and to get out from under his mother's yoke. Remember in earlier episodes when I noted how unstable his life had been? This instability continued now. Oswald had only been back in America for two months and had already lived in three different places. As we'll see in future episodes, this characteristic, the instability, would continue. Marina was thrilled to be in a place of her own. It was also across the street from Montgomery Ward, a big department store. She loved wandering through the toy and women's clothing departments, but Lee, Marina would later say, usually headed straight to the gun display. If you like this podcast, check out my book of the same title, Countdown to Dallas. Thanks to Paul Gregory Jr. and Stephen Beschloss. Sound from the PBS program Frontline, I highly recommend its 1993 episode titled, Who Was Lee Harvey Oswald? Our editor and producer, Aaron Land. Audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. And I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks so much for listening. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.